Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today, we'll be exploring the simulated multiverse. My guest, Rizwan Virk, is an entrepreneur, video game industry pioneer, indie film producer, and author. I've done a previous interview with Riz, which I am linking to right here in case you haven't watched it. I think you'll find it very valuable about his book, The Simulation Hypothesis, an MIT computer scientist shows why AI, quantum physics, and Eastern mystics all agree we are in a video game. Today, we'll be exploring his newest book in which he combines his interest in the simulation hypothesis with an interest in parallel universes. And now, I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Riz. It's a pleasure to be with you once again. Thanks so much for uh, having me on your show again, and uh, congratulations again on your Bigelow essay, uh, which I had just read this morning. <laughs> well, we're going to be focusing today on the advanced version of the simulation hypothesis because what you've done is... Uh, best I can tell from your newest book is built on the good work you've already done in explicating the simulation hypothesis. But now, we're looking at parallel universes and multiple realities, the many worlds interpretation, and how that could intersect with the, the idea that we're all living in the equivalent of a video game. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, after I wrote my last book, uh, I thought I was done with simulation theory for a while and that I would, you know, go back to my career in Silicon Valley and, and academia. And, uh, uh, but that wasn't to be the case. Uh, you know, I ended up having uh, lunch with a friend of mine from MIT who was visiting Google. He had just taken a job at Google. And, uh, you know, we, we met in Mountain View, which is where uh, Google's uh, corporate headquarters are. And, uh, he, we were talking about my book and, and he mentioned that a lot of the, uh, um, uh, a lot of the items that I talked about in the simulation hypothesis were a good explanation for something called the Mandela effect. And he, he asked me if I had heard of it. And of course, I had heard of it, but I had dismissed it as just a case of faulty memory, which I think is what many science-oriented people you know, tend to do uh, with something that's as bizarre as that. Uh, and, and so he said, well, the simulation hypothesis is the best explanation. And so I went back and started looking into this idea of multiple timelines. And, you know, that led me down the rabbit hole again. And I ended up uh, going back to the work of science fiction writer Philip K. Dick, who, uh, you know, had written the books behind the movies Blade Runner and Minority Report, as well as the very recent very popular series on Amazon, The Man in the High Castle, which was about an alternate timeline. And I had interviewed his wife as part of my research for the simulation hypothesis because he made a, a pretty famous statement in 1977 
at a sci-fi convention in Metz, France, where he said, we are living in a computer-programmed reality, and the only clue we have to it is when some variable is changed, some alteration of our reality occurs. Now, I and most people had focused only on the first part of that statement, which was that we're living in a computer-programmed reality. And there are videos of that online, on YouTube, all over the Internet, so you know your viewers and listeners can definitely look it up. And the audience just kind of looked at him like, are you crazy? What are you talking about? And this is back in 1977. But I realized it, in going back and, and researching this that what he was really saying uh, was the second part of that statement where you can alter some variables and you can rerun the computer programmed reality and have different outcomes. Uh, and it turns out, you know, he came to believe that the man in the high castle, which, you know, was his probably best received novel, um, which he wrote in like 1960. So I guess it was only, you know, 15 years or so after World War II. But he came to believe that there was an actual timeline where the Japanese and the Germans won World War II. But for whatever reason, that timeline proved not to be optimal, whatever optimal means, and that whoever was running the simulation rewound the timeline and reran it again. And, and so, you know, I'm an engineer and a computer scientist, so I decided to look at this from the perspective of, is that possible? Could that be done within a simulation? And then the more research I did into quantum mechanics and into other areas even of consciousness, I realized perhaps this is what's going on, that the people who are reporting different memories under the Mandela effect aren't crazy or simply misremembering. Perhaps we've all been here before, uh, to quote another popular science fiction show, Battlestar Galactica. Perhaps all of this has happened before, and all of this will happen again. Just like Philip K. Dick said, we would have the sense that we were reliving the same events and have feelings of deja vu uh, and synchronicity, and these are clues that at some previous time, an alteration was made in an alternate reality branched off. And so it's a big what-if exercise, but it definitely goes deeper uh, than the previous book, which you know tried to cover as many bases as possible. And in this book, I try to go in, in much more detail and depth within this idea of the multiverse and parallel universes and how that relates to computation and information science. Your book sort of reminds me of another well-known movie, Groundhog Day, where uh, the lead character, I think, is Bill Murray, and he is uh, repeatedly reliving a single day over and over and over again until he finally gets it right. Yeah, that's right. I, I thought of that reference myself. And, you know, in, in this book, uh, in the simulated multiverse, you know, I, I'll, there's a lot of case studies of famous science fiction and popular culture where they touch on this idea of multiple universes. And, you know, Groundhog Day was from like 1993, I believe. And there's another movie from 1998 called Run Lola Run, where she starts off and she has to like rescue her boyfriend who is in trouble with the mob and get him $100,000. And, you know, it, within 15 minutes into the movie, everything went wrong and she dies and he dies and then they start over again. And then she makes slightly different choices. And then they never explain the mechanism of how this works. But, you know, that's another example of popular fiction where you get another chance to do it right. And so that was one of the fun parts of this book was exploring some of the different films and TV shows and movies. Uh, there's also Fringe from a few years ago. Uh, which um, had a parallel uh, reality that branched off from our own, and it was kind of the 2000s version of the X-Files, if you will. Uh, and then there was Counterpart, which came out uh, more recently, uh, which uh, you know was about a physics experiment that went wrong and that actually ended up um, 
uh, branching off an alternate version. And until the point of branch, and this is where it becomes, becomes interesting, it wasn't just that the two realities were similar <clears throat> in, in counterpart, they were actually the same reality. So it gets back to this idea that you know there may be multiple versions of you that branched off, but at some point they may have been part of the same version of you, or what I like to call time instance of a single person. Well, since you brought up the Bigelow essay competition, which I uh, am pleased to say, I'm incredibly pleased to say I won the first prize, uh, it struck me, I've been thinking about this quite a bit, like how many times in other realities might I have entered that same competition and lost? <laughs> That's right. So if somebody else who's watching this has entered the competition and lost, they might have actually won in another reality. <laughs> And, uh, you know, one of the chapters in, in the book, I, I didn't explore the spiritual consciousness side as much in this book because it's more about the science. But in the last chapter, uh, you know, I, I go back to this idea of near-death experiences. And I know you talk about in your essay about life reviews. And I'm sure most of your uh, listeners or uh, viewers will be familiar with the concept. But one thing that I found interesting in reports of near-death experiences was sometimes they would see an alternate version of what might happen. And so I remember there was a case of one woman who was given the choice of whether to go back after her near-death experience back into life or to stay in the after-death state. And she saw what would happen to her children if she didn't go back. And she saw it in vivid detail. And whenever people who have been on the other side describe seeing these alternate realities, they don't describe them as alternate realities. It's as if they're actually watching what is really happening. And so, you know, a much better model might be that this whole uh, physical reality is part of this simulation and you can stop it, you can run it forward, you can change the variables, and there are many different versions of it. And so, you know, you can say that that other reality happened up to a certain point in the same way that our reality is happening because she was able to watch it happening. And then she chose, you know, as a mother, she chose to go back and be with her kids because she knew if she was there, they would have a different Reality, And then people in the pre-birth state, you know, if you look at the work of Dr. Michael Newton and, uh, you know, A Journey of Souls, where he, he hypnotized patients and go back, and Brian Weiss, who you mentioned in your essay, uh, when he also did regressions to that in-between state, what the Buddhists would call the bardo, uh, that there are many times when they see an actual machine or something that looks like a machine, these are metaphors, of course, where they see a line and they see these choice points that they will have in their life that are like really important points. And then, you know, just in the same way that you or I might decide to live in New York or move to California or Albuquerque or Phoenix, those might result in very different timelines within our lives. And they report that they can actually watch what was happening as if they were really watching New York, even though technically it would have been in the future from the time they were watching it. And so it, it made much more sense to me that we were in a simulated multiverse uh, and we are players in this game. Uh, you know, when we talk about, you know, this phenomenon and, and how it might work. It's sort of at the fringes of many different fields. <laughs> you referenced Philip K. Dick and in your interview with his wife, Tessa. And to my knowledge, and I think you report as much in your book, he was adamant that his novels, many of them were not based on the creative fantasy of a great writer, which he certainly was, but were actual memories from an alternative timeline. Yeah, he really insisted on this, and she said he came to believe this. And if you watch uh, or read his writings and, and, and watch his talks, you can see that he had a bit of an evolution. He said when he wrote it, he wrote it based on 
fragmentary residual memories, right? The kind that you might have of a dream state where you remember pieces. And he said he became obsessed with an alternate version of America, which was a kind of a fascist police state. And that he wrote about this in novel after novel, he says, uh, including uh, Flow My Tears, the policeman said, and of course, The Man in the High Castle, which is the main one that people reference. But he says that later on, a few years later, he had an experience which he... uh, uh, which he says was akin to what the Greeks would call anamnesis, uh, which you know we might define as a remembering, but if you do the literal translation, it's a loss of forgetfulness. Uh, and I found this quite interesting because he said all the memories of those other timelines came flooding into him. Uh, and so he remembered not just the details that he actually wrote in his book, uh, and in fact, he was working on a sequel to The Man in the High Castle, and, and Tessa said that he, he did, decided not to finish that because it was a, very disturbing. He was going, you know, heavy into the German occupation, and he found himself disturbed that, by that. But he also found that once he had this full set of memories come back, you know, the, uh, the drive that he had to try to write about this wasn't as strong because it felt like he had kind of expressed it, and now it had opened the floodgates, and he kind of knew what that was about. And then then he claims to have had some strange experiences where he actually interacted with some beings uh, that were running the simulation, running quote unquote the simulation, uh, whatever that might mean. And, you know, Tessa said that they told him that they had tried different timelines and they had a case where JFK, you know, assassination in Dallas was prevented but then he ended up getting assassinated by the same people in Orlando or in another city, or it led to an outcome that was not a great outcome. And so, you know, this brought me back to why do we run simulations? Right? There's a, a term in computation called a computational irreducibility, uh, which is the idea that you can't figure out what's going to happen unless you run the process through all the steps. And the term was coined by a physicist, Stephen Wolfram, who also created the Mathematica software uh, and has come up with a whole new uh, way of looking at physics through computation. But the idea is if you want to see what happens at step 2 million, you have to go to step 1,999,999, which means you have to just run it. And so this, this reminded me that perhaps the universe is a computationally irreducible process because you don't know exactly what will happen unless you actually run it and let people make the choices, which then turns around and complicates it even further, I think, you know. But yeah, so with Philip K. Dick, you know, he really, he was adamant about believing this as a model for what was really happening in our reality. And in many ways, you know, he was ahead of his time because even the multiverse idea which had been proposed uh, in quantum mechanics in in the 1960s had not yet caught on uh, with most uh, physicists. And he may not even been aware of that, that idea. I've worked quite a bit with neural networks and genetic algorithms for the purpose of financial forecasting. What been one of my hobbies, and in in that work, you would generate maybe thousands of different alternative uh, scenarios or algorithms for predicting future events, and the ones that may work the best in. Uh, in the past or in a specially uh, set aside uh, set of data for testing may not work well into the future, but often they do. Right. And so genetic algorithms is interesting because, you know, you, t- you represent 
something in a game state. Well, I call it a game state being a video game guy, and that's how I talk about representing the entire universe, right? The entire universe can be represented, at least in its current state, based upon the bits. And with the genetic algorithms, you combine those bits of information, and then you have what's called a fitness function, and you try out to figure out which each of those alternatives, which of those is the best. And, you know, this kind of reminded me of how we train artificial intelligence, uh, particularly with respect to video games. I mean, most people know about uh, Deep Blue, uh, which was the IBM computer that beat Gary Kasparov, the world champion in chess, way back in the 1990s. Uh, and then more recently, there's been Deep Mind and AlphaGo, uh, which learned to play the game of Go, which is actually a much more complicated game in a way than chess. And rather than having rules, the way that they trained uh, this algorithm uh, to, to be able to beat the world's best uh, Go players was through a process called self-play. And so they had the, the, the AI play itself again and again, and they had him do it, uh, him, him, <laughs> they had it do the, the, the play millions of times over a few days. And it was through that process that the algorithm learned what was best and what wasn't best. Um, and so in, in, in my own thinking about a simulated multiverse, I began to wonder, what if something similar is going on and we are able to play out different versions of what might happen. And from those, we can learn and figure out which are the most optimal for us. And, you know, turns out there are interpretations of quantum mechanics, and I can talk more about them, uh, the different ones uh, here in a minute. But, you know, there are some where, uh, for example, uh, Fred Allen Wolf, um, you know, who wrote many books on the subject, talks about a particular model where each possible future is sending information to the past and that we in the present are meeting this information, which is sent as a wave, and we are figuring out which of those is the best one we want to go to. And so, you know, what that implies is a few things. One, how could the future be sending back information to the present if it doesn't exist yet? Well, it, in some form, it has to exist. And two, our definition of yet <laughs> may be wrong. Uh, and this is another thing that I found in my explorations of quantum mechanics is um, that if you, if you look at my first book, The Simulation Hypothesis, it was telling us that space, the physical universe, is not what we think it is. And in this book, uh, it's telling us that time is not what we think it is, that it's something very different. Um, and, you know, one of the, the things that I came across was uh, the delayed choice experiment. Uh, which was proposed by John Wheeler, who was you know, one of the giants of 20th century physics. He was at Princeton, uh, you know, across the hall from Einstein and many others. Um, and he was also the, the supervisor of Hugh Everett, who came up with the quantum multiverse theory uh, as well. But he proposed an experiment called the delayed choice experiment, uh, which is kind of a riff on the uh, double slit experiment, and which, you know, the best way to explain a double slit experiment is uh, with the example of Schrodinger's cat. And I think we talked a bit about this last time, where the cat is either alive or dead. Uh, after an hour, it has a 50% chance of being one or the other because there's some poison in the box with the cat, the unfortunate cat, <laughs> and some radioactive material that will let out the poison with that probability. And so common sense tells us the cat is either alive or dead. It can't be both. But quantum mechanics is telling us both of those exist, that that cat is in a state of superposition until someone observes it and looks at it. And, and so that's called the observer effect. And Schrodinger didn't like it. Uh, 
Um, that's why he came up with this idea of the cat, because he said it's ridiculous. The cat has to be alive or dead. But in fact, you know, that's not what quantum mechanics is telling us. Einstein didn't like it. He said God doesn't play dice with the universe. But in the delayed choice experiment, it gets even weirder. Uh, Wheeler proposed an experiment where there was some choice that was made in the past, which isn't observed until the future. And he gave the example of uh, a quasar or some object that was a billion light years away that was coming towards us, and there was a gravitationally large object in the middle, like a black hole. And the light can go, say, to the left or to the right, and we can have telescopes here and detectors on Earth that can pick up you know, which way did the light go, which way was it polarized around this gravitationally large object. And if that object was a million light years away from us, and the light is coming from a billion years ago, then the choice would have had to have been made a million years ago, right? Except that what quantum mechanics is telling us, and they've been able to do versions of this experiment, and it's ongoing, but they've been able to confirm that the choice of whether to go left or right is not made until we measure that light when it reaches the Earth. So something that should have been done a million years ago is only being done now. Now, what does that mean? That means that time is not what we think it is. Uh, and in computer science, we have this idea of lazy evaluation, right? Or I call it conditional rendering. We only compute the things that need to be computed, and everything else exists in states of probability and information uh, that we can compute based upon the choices that we make. So we're used to thinking that if you make a choice, that will affect how things go in the future. We're not used to thinking that there are multiple possible pasts and that the choice we make today might impact you know, how that goes in the past. And so that all fed into this idea of a simulated multiverse. Well, it strikes me from what you're saying that the uh, mysterious beings who are programming this computer game in which we perhaps all exist, they may be ourselves. We may be the ones in charge. That's exactly right. So people ask me sometimes, so who's running the simulation? You know, is it God? Is it aliens? Is it... Uh, you know, a technologically advanced civilization running what's called an ancestor simulation. And I say, well, what if it's us, right? What if each of us is actually playing our character in the game, right? In the same way that I, I, I talked about a, um, uh, the woman in the, the near-death experience who was able to look at a particular time strand, which was based on her making a choice. Now, imagine if there's you know billions of us, each of us making choices, and this gets this gets to the heart of of what what I think is the most interesting aspect of the simulation hypothesis, and it's one that most academics ignore uh, because they don't like to talk about consciousness, and that is the NPC versus the RPG version of the simulation hypothesis. And so NPC stands for non-player characters who are characters in the video game that have no existence outside of the game. They're just based on code and algorithms, and you could say they were AI. Uh, and, uh, you know, there was a, a movie that came out this summer called Free Guy with Ryan Reynolds, uh, which in which he played an NPC who was reliving the same events, uh, and then he became aware of the fact that he was inside the game and he was an NPC. Um, and so, you know, in that case, we don't exist outside the simulation, but the other version is the RPG version, which is the role-playing game. Um, and, you know, coming at it from the video game angle, that's the, the one that I like. And add that is similar to The Matrix, where in The Matrix, Neo and Morpheus and Trinity, they all existed outside of the simulation. And they were jacked in through brain-computer interfaces so that they forgot, you know, what the real world was like. 
Um, and so they were players, and they so they had what we call PCs or player characters, right? And those two aren't mutually exclusive. If you think of a game like Fortnite or World of Warcraft or you know any of the online massively multiplayer uh, online role playing games, Grand Theft Auto, there are many NPCs within those environments. But then there are also the PCs, the characters, and and so you know we just happen to be in a game that's so good that we forget that there's an outside world and it which uh, you know reminds me of uh, the Greeks talk about crossing the river of forgetfulness you know on their way into in, into an incarnation and so that was interesting that Philip K Dick used that specific term which is the loss of forgetfulness right uh, which is a remembering of that there was something else outside of this physical reality or remembering in his case different runs of the same game in the same way that I can play a character in a video game and I can go back and make different choices. I don't forget that the last time it ran, but the character that I'm playing should theoretically forget it. So it depends how good this river of forgetfulness is, or as the Chinese like to say, Meng Po, the goddess of forgetfulness, uh, brews this tea. So how effective in how much of that tea you drank you know, before starting this particular run of the simulation. Well, this is all getting very technical and heady, but what I'd like to do is go back to a concept you introduced right at the beginning that we haven't fully explored yet, the Mandela effect. To my knowledge, there are probably tens of thousands of people who are reporting memories from alternative timelines, and they have many discussion groups on social media. Yeah, and turns out there's a lot of online forums dedicated to this. So going back to Philip K. Dick's speech back in Metz, France, you know, he said that, of course, he remembered what he called an alternate present with an alternate history. Um, and he said, all we would need to do is find a subset or a group of people who had memories of a different previous present or a different way to get to the present. And turns out that started to happen with the explosion of the internet because people were able to share their memories. And in the 2010 or so, I think, the term the Mandela effect was coined by a blogger named Fiona Broom because uh, she and many, I mean, she heard reports of many people who said they remembered Nelson Mandela dying in prison uh, back in the 1980s or even the early 1990s. But of course, in our reality, that didn't happen. In fact, he was still alive, I think, during the time when she coined this term. And he died in our reality in 2013. But yet these people remembered vivid descriptions of watching his funeral, of watching his wife, Winnie, taking over uh, leadership of that party. And so in that timeline, you know, he never... Uh, was released from prison, never became president of South Africa, never won the Nobel Peace Prize, etc. All of these things that, that, that happened in, in, in a specific timeline. And so it turns out that that wasn't limited to just that one incident. Uh, you know, there are many small things that are accounted as Mandela effects, like probably one of the most famous is uh, the Bernstein Stain Bears, which is the old cartoon for kids or the, the comic, comic book, graphic book. And so uh, many remember it as the Bernstein Bears, spelled, you know, kind of S-T-E-I-N uh, or S-T-I-E-N, as opposed to how it's spelled currently, which is S-T-A-I-N. Uh, and you know, even some folks remember 
um, talking about why are these bears Jewish, right? Uh, and people who were, you know, from, from Jewish tradition asking that. Now, why would they ask that? And obviously an adult could easily correct them <laughs> and say, well, this is S-T-A-I-N if that was the case. And yet many people remember having those conversations. Um, and it's become a plot point. There was even a movie in 2019 called The Mandela Effect, and that was one of the plot points. Um, and then it goes to movies, movie lines. Most, many people remember, you know, Darth Vader in The Empire Strikes Back saying, you know, Luke I am your father. And if you go back and watch The Empire Strikes Back, you'll remember, you'll see the line is different. It is, no, I am your father, as opposed to the line we all remember. Now, you know, there's so many of these, you know, does Curious George have a tail or not? Uh, was there something called Jiffy peanut butter? Well, no, there wasn't. There was only something called Jiff. Uh, so many of these are small, but you know, we get into uh, larger and larger events. Like many people remember in Tiananmen Square, and the the uh, the gentleman who stood in front of the tank, and he you know the tank turned aside as far as I remember in this reality, but many people remember him running over that particular man, and you know they called him Tank Boy, and they remember seeing how bloody it was and being shocked and amazed, and so they'll remember vivid details, and many people will remember the same details, which is where it gets interesting, and so I, I like to draw uh, the the connection of. Um, uh, of proximity and significance. Like, is this an event that was significant to you? If so, you are more likely to have remembered it than if it was just some random thing that you happened to see on some newscast. Uh, and so, for example, there was a, uh, an, an online blogger who was a journalist who went to South Africa to interview Nelson Mandela in the late 80s and was told that he was too ill for her to interview him. And then she went back and started working for NPR so as a journalist, and she heard that he had died and saw his funeral. Well, now that person is a lot less likely to have confused Nelson Mandela with some other black leader dying in prison. Similarly, there are evangelical Christians who remember the Reverend Billy Graham dying and getting, you know, magazines on the front page saying, you know, that, that he has passed away and watching his funeral and Bill Clinton speaking at his funeral years before he actually died. And now for me, that wouldn't, I'm not an evangelical Christian, so it wouldn't be a particularly significant uh, event, nor am I close to it. I, I might be more likely to remember, you know, Mark Hamill as Luke Skywalker. If he died, I would remember that really well. Um, and so, but those particular instances. So, you know, then I started to investigate and realize that there are really strange things. There's some pictures in the book of uh, the thinker. And if you look at the thinker and you look at, you know, where his hand is, it's kind of in this, you know, lightly clenched underneath his chin. Uh, but there's a picture of George Bernard Shaw from 1906 at an unveiling of the state of the, of the statue, the, the thinker in London where it says, you know, G.B. Shaw in the pose of the thinker, and he's got his hand up here in his forehead, and turns out there's many individuals who've taken pictures next to the statue. And you can look at the picture and see that the statue clearly has the hand here, but yet they have their hand up here, and they're imitating it. And so they were, you know, very close. Proximity, right? There's significance and proximity. Could they all have gotten that wrong when they're so close, or could something else be going on? And then there's the whole area of Bible changes, right, and scriptural changes. I mean, there's a whole group of people who monitor this online. And, you know, you can spend, you know, many days and weekends going through these online forums. But I found the scriptural changes quite interesting because, again, that has more significance for specific people. And, you know, there's the line about the, the lion and the lamb in Isaiah. I think it was, I forget which verse it was. Uh, and th there are actual physical, like, 
um, you know, quotes of that, like physical objects, like a frame that, that, that talk about that and show a picture of the lion and the lamb. But if you look at your King James Bible, you'll see that it's actually the wolf will lie with the lamb, not the lion. And, and so there are many people who are monitoring these scriptural changes and believe that it's being done, you know, through some strange, um, uh, manipulation by some entity. Um, and, you know, in the Islamic traditions, this is quite interesting because I, I started to wonder, well, if it's happening in the Bible, is it happening in other religious traditions? And there was a, a, a well-known Sufi priest, uh, Imam, who talks about, uh, you know, one of the things, like I grew up in, in the Muslim tradition, and I remember there was something called a Hafiz, who was somebody who had memorized the Quran word for word. And I remember thinking, why would we need to memorize the Quran word for word? I mean, we have books now, right? We have the printing press, everything, you know, we have online. Uh, and so this Imam says one of the reasons why they did this was because there were supposedly entities called jinns or genies in, in, in the Western traditions who don't live in the same time frame that we do in the same timeline, and they're allowed, uh, jinns and other entities outside of our physical reality could change a variable in the past which could change the physical things, but the thing they're not allowed to change necessarily is our memories. And I just found that quite fascinating because it tied exactly back to what Philip K. Dick was saying. He even used the terms the programmer and the counter-programmer uh, and his dark counterpart, you know, which obviously has religious overtones. Now, of course, in this book, I bring these things up because I'm interested in looking at, you know, what is the mechanism? What is the technology? What are the underlying physics? Could Is this really possible? Uh, and, and that's when I discovered that actually, yeah, it, it, it actually might be possible. And we may even be able to articulate you know, how it was done. Uh, so anyway, that, that's a kind of a long explanation of the Mandela effect and some of my, you know, investigations into it and why I thought, it doesn't matter whether you believe it or not, people do have these memories, right? So that part of it is real, whether you believe the actual events happened in different ways. It's too easy in, in, in science, in mainstream science, to dismiss these as, you know, uh, simple anecdotes uh, and, you know, uh, but each of these constitutes, just like in your essay, right, the white crows that can uh, add up uh, to, you know, show that not all crows are black. Uh, and, and there's more and more evidence of this. Uh, but, but anyway, so I did a big what-if experiment in my book to figure out if I could come up with some explanation for how all this might work. Well, you also make a point of exploring the alternative hypotheses that someone who is a, a hardcore conventional thinker would come up with. And, and surely we know that human beings are capable of all sorts of follies and errors. So we need to approach this with a certain humility, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And there are alternate explanations. And, you know, my initial reaction was, well, you know, it's just faulty memory. You remember Jif versus Jiffy peanut butter? That's like two, uh, two letters. And when I was a kid, you know, my memory of when I was a kid may not be uh, that exact. And so, uh, you know, there's something called uh, the lost in the mall procedure, which is, uh, uh, which is uh, something uh, that a uh, psychologist at, I think, University of Washington came up with, where they, he convinced his younger brother that his younger brother had gotten lost in the mall by telling him this story. And his younger brother began to believe that that's what actually happened because our memories when we're much younger, uh, you know, are not so solid. And so uh, there are explanations like that. There are other 
uh, explanations, which are get more esoteric of time travel, right? Uh, in 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 every, in every good Doctor Who episode, right? You can go back and change uh, something, which then leads to another timeline. I I, I uh, talk about uh, the Star Trek episode yesterday's Enterprise, where um, an old version of the Enterprise that was supposed to have been destroyed uh, like a hundred years ago shows up because it didn't get destroyed because of some time travel, and then they send it back, and when they send it back. You know, an unexpected chain of events causes the entire Federation to be at war, and now it's in a completely different timeline. Uh, and so there's those types of explanations. There are, you know, CERN, uh, you know, caused this with an experiment they did. Um, since the election of 2016, you have your people who say, you know, Trump being elected was an alternate timeline, and you have other people saying Hillary got elected in an alternate timeline. And so you've got lots of different explanations. But, you know, my point is just to take it, you know, a little more seriously than most mainstream scientists would. Uh, and, you know, to say that if there, there seem to be instances of this where there is larger proximity and larger significance and multiple people are reporting it. And so the more number of people that are reporting it, the more interesting I think it is as, as a phenomenon. Uh, and so I really dove deep into the multiverse explanation. And there are other explanations you can come up with as well. Well, the multiverse explanation is particularly fascinating in your book because you you go much further than just the world of pure physics where uh, the hypothesis originated. You're looking at how the multiverse might be interacting with each one of us, uh, maybe not on a daily basis, but in and out throughout our lives. Yeah, absolutely. And so in the book, I define, so I take the basic idea of the quantum multiverse, which going back to Schrodinger's cat, uh, so there are two different interpretations that are the most popular uh, of, of the double slit experiment and what we call the strange findings of, of quantum mechanics, and which of which Niels Bohr said, you know, those who are not shocked by quantum mechanics have not truly understood it because the implications are so strange. And so the first interpretation called the Copenhagen interpretation is that uh, there is a probability wave of different possible outcomes and that those collapse down to a single possibility when it is observed or measured. You know, there's some debate on that, right? John von Neumann, who is the grandfather of modern computers, in fact, the computers we're using right now are all built on the von Neumann architecture, more or less. Uh, you know, we, along with physicist Eugene Wigner, had a version of the theory that had more to do with consciousness. Uh, many other physicists believe it's just about measurement. But if you think about that, what does probability mean? So I actually thought about this. Uh, and it turns out the source of the modern uh, idea of probability is a, is a mathematician, I think, in France, who was asked to predict the possible future outcomes of dice and gambling, right? And so he said, if you take a dice, a die, a single die, and you roll it, there are six probable futures, right? And so that's how he came up with this idea of probability. So probability is meaningless if you just roll the dice once, right? So turns out that even when in the Copenhagen interpretation, when they talk about probability, it's meaningless unless... You can run that process multiple times. Uh, and in fact, there was a physicist named uh, Amit Goswami who's written quite a few uh, books like The Self-Aware Universe. I saw him talk once and he was explaining it and he said, well, we call it a probability wave, but it's what would happen if you ran the same thing again and again, right? It's all the different places that the particle would end up, or the way I like to think of it is in a movie theater, if there's one patron and it's dark and you don't know where they are until you shine a light on a particular seat, you can tell if they're sitting in that seat or not. 
this is the probability of where they might be uh, if they decided to, to sit in different seats at different times. Now, the other explanation that many physicists are gravitating towards because they don't like the idea that consciousness might be needed for the collapse of probability wave is the multiverse explanation, which is much more supported by the mathematics, which says that there is a universe for every single possibility. So Schrodinger's cat is alive in one universe and dead in another. Uh, and in my example of the movie theater, the patron is sitting in each one of the seats in each one of the universes. And so this relies on the branching of universes uh, every time a quantum decision is to be made. However, you know, the, the big question is, how does that work, right? And so there's objections to both of these interpretations. Um, the objection was consciousness to the first one, the objection to the second one, and, and also the fact that there was no math. The second one is it's not parsimonious, right? You're creating all these universes, not just every minute or every hour. You're creating them literally every instant, so there's an infinite number. And so physicists generally like infinity, right? They're comfortable with that idea. Uh, in fact, they use it you know, to argue many different things. Uh, but as computer scientists, we don't like the idea of infinite resources. Uh, and so, you know, we look to the world as information and we say, um, is there anything that can clone itself, like a large object, like a planet, let alone a galaxy, let alone even a person that can clone itself in an instant? And it turns out the only thing that can really clone itself in an instant is information. Right? And so, you know, this gets back down to getting back to John Wheeler, who I mentioned earlier, he crops up again and again, which is why I find his his idea is so fascinating. He said that physics went through three phases in his lifetime. In the first phase, everything was a particle, a physical object. In the second phase, everything was a field, field of probabilities, for example. And in the third phase, he came to realize that everything was information, that uh, a particle is only identifiable based upon a series of yes-no questions. Uh, and just recently, this week, I remember reading a, uh, a new study out about the amount of bits that it would take for all of the information in the universe. And it was something like, uh, I forget the number, 1.6 times 10 to the 80. And actually ties very closely to what I wrote about in this book, uh, which is that if there are 10 to the 80 particles in the universe, we could represent all of those in one game state. Now, that seems like a lot of numbers, but information can be cloned pretty quickly. And you can actually represent things in a graph, which I call the multiverse graph. So you don't need to clone all of those 10 to the 80 bits so if, if one single bit is the only thing that changes, a yes-no decision, uh, then you can just keep track of what's different between these different game states. And so this was a, sort of a, a more technical answer to what you asked, which is how does this relate to us in our lives? And so I came up with this idea of the core loop. And the core loop, if we were to describe it simply, is we try out each of the next few possibilities in this graph. Uh, we can play that timeline up to a certain point. And then we come back and we may have what's called a fitness function for each of us, which our consciousness, our soul, the part of us, our player in the, in the, the terminology that I like to use in, in the video game metaphor is actually making these choices and seeing how these choices, you know, might affect us down the road. And based upon that, you know, we are making the choice of which particular timeline uh, that we might want to be on. And so it is very much like playing a game and trying out different possibilities and then choosing the ones that we think are most optimal. But of course, optimal depends. Like when we run large simulations, people always ask me, what's the purpose of running a simulation of the world? You know, it could be to see if we destroy ourselves in climate change or if we ever get off the planet 
something that's called a great filter, or something else entirely. Or it could be that each of us has our own goals for the same reason. How do, why do we play video games? We do it to have experiences that we can't have outside the game. I can't fly on a dragon, at least in this physical reality, but uh, I am able to uh, you know, do that within the video game. So it's possible that each of us is playing this game because there are certain aspects in this constrained three-dimensional physical reality that you just can't experience outside of the game. You also suggest the possibility that different timelines could intersect so that you could run into a version of yourself or more likely another individual who came into this reality from a completely different timeline. Yeah, that's an interesting possibility that sounds like more of a science fiction <laughs> uh, you know, story than, than reality. And then there's a, I, I reference uh, quite a few different stories that I think draw out this idea better. And because the, the topics that we're talking about are such that they're at the border of science, science fiction, metaphysics, and spirituality. And so sometimes the best way to explore them you know, is through these seemingly fantastical stories. And there's a novel called Dark Matter by Blake Crouch, where a quantum physicist has made a certain set of choices, and he's a professor at a small university, he has a, you know, a family, the wife and a child. Uh, he's generally happy, but he always wonders, you know, what might have happened if I had made different choices, in the same way that many of us do. And he, because he's researching quantum uh, superposition, which is what I talked about, which is the cat being both alive and dead, turns out he runs into another version of himself that has come from another timeline who actually figured out how to put a person into quantum superposition. And he shows up in this timeline, he kidnaps him, sends him back to his timeline, and because he, the, the, the version of the second guy, Right, Jason too, I think it was called, uh, who had won the, you know, gotten close to winning the Nobel Prize because he had he had uh, figured this out, didn't have the wife and the family, and he wanted to live that life. So he kind of hijacks that person's life, and so I think this makes for an interesting story. But I think the possibility is that these timelines can intersect, uh, and that we can have different versions of ourselves. We can then stop our game. We can reload a game state that is somebody else's game state. So because it's a multiplayer game, there's all kinds of different possibilities that we can have in the same way that uh, you and I are talking to each other, but we're not really talking to each other, right? There's a server in the middle and it's sending bits of information to the server and those bits are being sent to you and you're re-rendering them. Well, that's how video games work. Like when, when you and I and our avatars are together, uh, we're not really together. In fact, we're not even being rendered together. Uh, you are rendering it on your laptop and I'm rendering it on, say, my iPhone, uh, which means that the information or the bits that came down can be changed. Uh, and so the server has the capability to basically change the parameters and load somebody else's world. There was a you know a game called Animal Crossing, I think, where you could create a little world and then you could go see what somebody else's island looked like. Um, you know, it's it's sort of a way of popping in and out of other people's games. Um, and and so you know, I think it's quite fascinating. There's a physicist named Tom Tom Campbell who wrote a book called My Big Toe, My Big Theory of Everything, and uh, you know he's actually proposed some experiments. That, that would show that this quantum uh, indeterminacy, which is at the heart of the double slit experiment, could in fact show us that things are being rendered as if we were in a video game. And he talks about this idea 
of being able to escape from our virtual reality and go visit another virtual reality and people coming in from other virtual realities. So I raised this possibility in my book. Um, it's not one that I explored fully, but it's a sort of a disturbing thought. But at least when we talk about the Mandela effect, you know, it, we get a gentler version of that where we're remembering things from different timelines. And so, you know, as we think of ourselves as players and characters, we can think of bringing in other characters or inhabiting other roles even, you know, within, within uh, this multiplayer multiverse. So bottom line is that you're suggesting that the sorts of things that we previously might have considered limited to science fiction and fantasy, with an emphasis on fantasy, have substantial backing these days from the world of science and need to be taken more seriously. Yeah, I think that's that's absolutely right. And there's a, there's a term uh, w which academics call social technical imaginaries. Uh, and it, it's a term for how science fiction is often used to imagine what might happen in the future. And I think it's actually a line where things go from one side to the other, where uh, advancements in, in science and technology influence science fiction, and science fiction influences reality. I mean, just look at William Shatner, who recently went into space, right? So you started with uh, him being in Captain Kirk in outer space in a TV show, and he actually had the opportunity to do that and became the world's oldest uh, uh, visitor or astronaut, I guess, uh, to space. But, you know, things go the other way as well. So, for example, uh, the first real story that I know of where time travel was accomplished by a machine was H.G. Wells, the time machine. And that was in the midst of the Industrial Revolution, which was all about how machines were changing society. And so you see it kind of go both ways. Now, the idea of <clears throat> the multiverse actually started as an obscure... Uh, you know, thesis uh, from a student of John Wheeler's who I mentioned earlier, uh, because uh, you know, and, and it just sat in obscurity for a while because Niels Bohr and Einstein weren't comfortable with this idea of multiple universes, um, and and so, but it caught on slowly uh, with scientists, and today I'd say it's probably one of the more popular interpretations of quantum mechanics, and it's seeped its way into science fiction. And it's even past what I like to call the 10-year-old test, right? And the 10-year-old test is when a concept from science that seems strange and bizarre at first becomes so uh, understandable and uh, diffuses itself throughout the culture that when a 10-year-old hears about it in uh, a science fiction movie, they don't blink an eye. And so, you know, uh, the idea of planets uh, in the universe and technological civilizations on those planets was new when you think about back to the beginning of the turn of the century, right? Just like with the time machine, any, any stories about time travel before that were it was accomplished by magic or fairies, right? And after that, it was accomplished by technology. But uh, Superman came from the planet Krypton. And so in the middle of the 20th century, this idea that there might be other planets wasn't so strange with other civilizations that you could use it to explain Superman, Superman's powers. Uh, and now my nephews tell me that's old hat. That's considered boring. Today, superheroes not just come from other planets. They come from other universes within the multiverse, right? And, uh, you know, The Flash and Supergirl, uh, these shows that have been quite popular in what's called the DC Comics Arrowverse are perfect science fiction examples of that, where this idea of the multiverse and multiple timelines splitting up has become popular. And now it's getting out there in the movies. Uh, there was a trailer for a, a new movie, uh, The Flash, which is going to bring back multiple versions of 
Batman, including Michael Keaton, who played Batman back in like 1989, I think it was. And you know, I, I'm old enough to have gone and seen that in the theater on opening day. And so that's kind of fun. But it's this idea that you have alternate versions of reality. Uh, but you know, the multiverse idea was actually taken more seriously by scientists than before it became science fiction. So I, I, I find it as a really fun and interesting way to look at today's popular culture, but also as a way to imagine you know, what, where science might take us in the future and, and to try to expand the minds. And many scientists have been inspired by Star Trek, for example, to uh, uh, become NASA engineers and uh, physicists, etc. So, so that's, that is, in fact, you know, part of my thesis in this book as well, is let's open our minds and realize that you know, these two realms, which uh, uh, seem separate, are, are kind of related in a way. And it, and it behooves us to think of them that way. It's very interesting to think that these kinds of elusive ideas that uh, you and I are working very hard to str and struggling to understand seem to come naturally to young people. We have so much I think we can learn from the younger generation. Uh, yeah, I think that's very true. Um, and in fact, you know, so many times uh, people have contacted me, you know, saying they really enjoyed the simulation hypothesis, but it was their children who first asked them, you know, about this idea. Like, could it be that the universe is like a video game? And, and part of the reason is it's the, the latest metaphor, but it's one that works with the latest technology and, and children, uh, children and teenagers in particular today spend much more time in virtual worlds. And especially with the pandemic, that's become even uh, more pronounced than you know, we did back in the day, like, you know, I would go out and play baseball with my buddies, whereas, you know, my nephews might uh, get on Fortnite uh, to interact with their buddies from school, and that's considered normal. And so, you know, I also think that this technology gives us um, a new way to think about and these updated metaphors. Uh, I, I'm one of the metaphors that I often bring up when we talk about ancient religions uh, are, you know, the dream metaphor, that the world is like a dream, which is used extensively in Buddhism, uh, and the stage play, which goes back to the grand Leela in the Hindu Vedas, and even Shakespeare, you know, used that analogy when he said, you know, all the world is a stage and the men and women are merely players. Um, and in the 20th century, uh, people began to use the metaphor of the movie. And, um, Yogananda, who wrote uh, one of the most popular spiritual books in the 20th century, at least in the West, called Autobiography of a Yogi, used the new, techno the new technology, because he came over in the 1920s, of the film reel and, and describing how reality was like a film. Well, if any of those people were around today, they would use the analogy that says, it's like a stage play or a film, but we can make choices and we can change the outcomes. So it's like an interactive stage play with multiple players. What does that sound like? It sounds like an interactive video game, right? A multiplayer video game. So I believe that those are the metaphors that would be used today. And our technology is getting good enough. I told this story, I think, last time on, on the show. The way I got into the simulation hypothesis uh, was that I was playing a, a table tennis virtual reality game and I had the headset on. And I forgot that I was in virtual reality, so much so that I tried to put the... Uh, the paddle on the table and lean against the table. Of course, there was no table and the, the controller fell to the floor. And that's when I realized, oh, our technology is getting to that point and started to wonder how long would it take us to build something like the Matrix that's so fully immersive that we would forget that we exist outside of it. Uh, so that's what led me down this journey. But yeah, to your point, I think uh, the younger generation today 
you know, we'll be much more comfortable with many of these ideas and concepts and they don't seem so strange. I mean, the same is true in the world, in the, in the world of UFOs. You know, I'm on the advisory board for the Galileo Project, which was set up by Avi Loeb at Harvard. And, you know, he, he says that for younger people, there's no stigma around this topic. You know, they're comfortable with the idea that there could be technological civilizations from other planets visiting us. Uh, whereas most scientists, you know, there's been this taboo and stigma that you can't study this seriously. That's just a, one of those crazy things that crazy people uh, out there study. And, and, and so I'm very encouraged by that as well. Well, Ruzwan Virk, you are a pioneer on the cutting edge of technology, spirituality, psychology, and theoretical science. What a pleasure to have this conversation with you. Uh, it's a, a real joy, and I hope we have many more. Riz, thank you so much for being with me. Well, thanks so much for having me on again, and yeah, I would love to uh, do it again sometime. And for those of you watching or listening, thank you for being with us. Thank you.